0: As we've said many times before, nothing has ever made sense about the trail of Donna's clothing that supposedly led to Oscar's house. If he were in a panicked rush to get home, why would he detour up Road 176 just to drop the underwear in a ditch? Why would he then immediately drop the pants in the middle of Ave 264? Then, the state argued, he would have had to stop on the wrong side of the road, wipe off a shoe, get out and place it carefully on its sole, and pull back out onto Ave 264 twice. Yet somehow, nobody saw Oscar or his truck between Neal Ranch and his home or saw any of the items before it got dark at around 5 p.m.
1: The pants in the middle of the road story always pointed away from Oscar dropping them at 4.30 as Powell claimed. That's a busy road, especially that time of day, and someone else would have seen them. Also, according to Lamb, the pants had not been run over and were not damp. Everyone agreed that there was a very wet fog that night and moisture had already accumulated on Donna's bike by 6.30 p.m. Does anyone believe that Lamb would have been able to tell that they were new pants that would fit her daughter as she drove by in the dark fog at 40 miles an hour?
0: All of this, coupled with the new information about the Lamb-Lee family, made us take another look at a couple of issues with the pants. Why did Lamb say she washed the pants when Blake's examination in 2002 disagreed, and why didn't Bird turn in the pants for evidence booking until January 8, 1976? Donna got the new ditto pant suit for Christmas, so the 26th was the first time she wore it. Presumably, she had on the pants for somewhere around six hours that day. Not to get overly graphic, but she was riding her bike with an old-style Kotex pad, which had leaked menstrual blood onto her underwear and pants. We know Donna was around several different animals that day because she went to care for them at the fielding house on Belmont. She also spent time near Judy Stewart's horse. She likely encountered additional pets and livestock at her house and at the homes of Carol, Heidi, Judy, and Don Lee. So if Donna's pants were new that morning and had not been washed we would expect to find them mostly clean with possible spots of menstrual blood and loose animal hairs.
1: Well, as you can see from Ed Blake's handwritten notes and the photos in the gallery, that's exactly what he found when he examined the pants in 2002. He determined that the pants were quote, relatively clean with animal hairs inside and out. He found three spots on the pants that he removed for closer examination. He checked for spermatozoa and found none. However, he did find some skin cells. So if Laverne Lamb had washed the pants, why were there still stains, skin cells, and animal hairs in and on the pants?
0: Where are the animal hairs now? The fact that these were just dismissed is insane. DNA from pet hairs had already been introduced into evidence in criminal cases by 2002. We not only could know exactly the type of animal that left the hairs, but possibly trace the family line. It was a long time after 1975, but almost everyone involved in the case was still alive in 2002 and could have provided valuable information about the animals Donna was around that day. How did the Innocence Project miss this vital evidence? They are obsessed with DNA. Why didn't they get a court order to have those hairs tested? This could have been a critical clue in the case, and it was totally ignored.
1: So, why would Laverne Lamb say she washed the pants if she hadn't? As usual, we're right back at Bob Bird. If he coached her on the entire story, the washing detail likely came from him. But why? Our best guess is to make sure that the pants never went to Morton's lab for evidence testing. The only reason for that would be if Bird believed that the testing would point to someone other than Oscar. This sounds far-fetched, but the rest of the evidence actually supports this theory.
0: If you look in the gallery, you'll see a photo of the paper bag that contained Donna's pants. Bird's handwriting indicates that he got the pants on December 28, 1975, and handed them over to T.C.S.O. Johnson on January 8, 1976. That is confirmed by Johnson's evidence card. We probably don't need to tell you that this is not proper police procedure or evidence handling, not even in 1975. All other evidence in the case was secured in the crime lab on the same day it was collected, as is required to maintain chain of custody. Where were Donna's pants during those 11 days? Who had access to the pants? We'll never know.
1: Obviously, that made us wonder why Bird held onto the pants for so long. It had to be intentional. What happened to all the other evidence in the case that was collected between December 26th and January 8th? It was sent to Morton's lab for examination and possible follow-up forensic testing. Everything, every item in the case, except Donna's pants, was turned over to Morton on or before January 6, 1976. That is not a coincidence. Bird did not want Donna's pants to be examined forensically or tested, so he did not turn them into evidence until everything had already been delivered to Morton's lab in Oakland.
0: How did Bird get away with this, and why didn't he want the pants tested? Those questions have bothered us for years, but with the new information about Laburn Lamb's relationship with Don Lee, we're seeing some troubling implications. It's become clearer to us exactly how the washing story and birds holding of the pants worked together to prevent their testing. Some of this played out during Morton's testimony at trial. Donahue, were there items of clothing of the victims submitted to your laboratory?
1: Morton, yes, they were.
0: Now, we know that there was one pair of trousers, dark blue, green, I guess they were. Now, this is a pair of green ditto pants, Mr. Morton. It's exhibit number 20, and I suppose... Can you identify the sack or the pants themselves as being the pair of pants submitted to you or to your institute?
1: I don't believe these were ever submitted to us. Our marking is not on it and the identifying number that was on the other evidence is not there. It has the same sheriff's department numbers but our numbers are not on it and my initials are not on it and I don't have it listed on our evidence log. We have a One dark green Ditto jacket, and the color of this jacket appeared to be the same as that one that was submitted to us, but I do not have the pair of trousers.
0: Powell, counsel, I think we didn't give that to them because they had been washed, according to the woman who found them.
1: Clearly, Donahue didn't know until that exact minute, in the middle of the capital murder trial, that the victim's pants had never been forensically examined or tested. Why didn't Donahue ever question whether or not the pants had actually been washed? This is really odd to us because when there was a question at trial about the lack of examination of the pants Oscar had been wearing, Donahue insisted that they be sent to the state crime lab for re-examination, which confirmed that they contained no evidence. Donahue did that in the middle of the trial. So why didn't he have the lab examine Donna's pants to confirm that they had actually been washed? and contained no evidence. Would Donahue have ignored the pants if he had known that Laverne Lamb was a member of the Lee Scroggins family? No.
0: We know we've already pointed to dozens of lies and acts of misconduct in D.A. Ward's 2019 report, but we have to mention one more. Donna's pants were never admitted into evidence during the trial, and Ward is barred from using them in his case review, and he may not in any way argue that they add to the sufficiency of the evidence in Oscar's conviction. In fact, all of Laverne Lamb's testimony about the pants is barred because it was offered to prove that Oscar was guilty, and that required admitted evidence. There's a world of difference between an exhibit and an item of evidence. An exhibit is generally something like a map or photo that shows or demonstrates helpful information, whereas evidence is offered to prove the truth of a fact relevant to guilt or innocence. So when Lamb was testifying, the map Powell used to ask her where she found the pants was an exhibit, but the pants had to meet the standards for evidence because they were being used to try to prove that Oscar was guilty, supposedly because they were found on the road where he lived within about an hour of his arrival home.
1: This may sound like a small point, but it is literally everything in a criminal case. Imagine if Lamb had come forward with a story about finding the pants, but she didn't have them. She couldn't have proven that she found pants, or, if she did, that they belonged to Donna. Donahue would have objected to her testimony as being speculative, irrelevant, and likely to mislead the jury. Lamb needed the actual pants and Bird's custody markings on the bag. It appears that Donahue believed that the pants had been tested by Morton and that they would be entered into evidence when Lamb testified, but he was wrong about both things. These mistakes led to another ridiculous disaster for the defense that is carried forward to this
0: day. So what would it have looked like if the pants were entered into evidence, meaning what did Donahue expect would happen during Lamb's testimony? First, someone needed to identify the pants and prove that they belonged to Donna. When did that happen? Never. Were the pants shown to Donna's parents so that they could confirm that they were hers? No. How do we know that they were really Donna's pants? We don't. Did the jury ever see the pants? Nope they were kept in the bag and never shown. They never even viewed a photo of the pants. Even if the pants had been properly identified and authenticated with full chain of custody, Donahue still should have argued that the pants were unreliable evidence given the circumstances and the time that Lamb and Bird had them. He should have made a motion to keep them out of the trial and away from the jury's consideration. Instead, something really, really strange happened during Lamb's testimony.
1: Powell. And what was the item that you found?
0: Lamb. It was a pair of ladies' green pants.
1: I think, Your Honor, we had better keep this in the sack marked, just mark it on the sack if we could.
0: The court. Fine. At this time, People's Exhibit No. 20, A Bag and Contents, was offered and marked for identification purposes only.
1: Powell. Let me show you what has been marked as plaintiff's number 20 for identification. Would you look at those? Is that what you found on the roadway? Yes, it is. Powell didn't take the pants out of the bag, show them to the jury, or ask that they be entered into evidence. Perhaps Donahue would have objected and argued that maybe they weren't Donna's pants or that their unknown condition made them unreliable. If he had... Oscar could have used that objection on appeal, especially if he found out Lamb was a member of the Lee family. Instead, Donahue allowed Lamb to go on and testify about pants that weren't in evidence, yet offered to prove that Oscar was guilty. Donahue didn't seem to pay attention to the actual pants. He was distracted by Lamb's confusion on the stand. It's hard to explain how grotesquely wrong this is. The standard for an exhibit for identification purposes is that it is what it purports to be, maybe a map of the area or a photo of a person. The standard for evidence is that it is material and relevant to the question of guilt or innocence, that it is not unduly confusing to the jury or prejudicial to the defendant, and that it was collected and maintained under strict rules for contamination, tampering, and chain of custody. The pants did not and could not have met the standard for admissible evidence.
0: Treating an exhibit as evidence is not just wrong, it is clear-cut prosecutorial misconduct and grounds to overturn a conviction. The prosecutor may not refer to facts or items not in evidence, especially during his closing arguments. Never one to let a rule stop him, Powell referred to Donna's pants eight times during his closing. Not to be outdone... D.A. Ward made four references to Lamb and the pants in his 2019 report. To be painfully clear, this is gross prosecutorial misconduct. Again, the pants were not in evidence, and Ward may not consider them or refer to them as proof of Oscar's guilt. This is abuse of discretion during the case review and grounds for an independent DOJ investigation. Well, you may argue... Maybe Ward didn't know that the pants weren't in evidence. That would mean that he didn't read the trial transcript, which he swore in his report that he did, which would mean he lied, which would be abuse of discretion. You see how this goes.
1: Where are we now? Laverne Lamb, who did not disclose her relationship to the last person to see Donna alive, claimed to have washed pants that weren't, in fact, washed. Bird then held the pants in an unknown location until all of the other case evidence had been sent for testing. Powell proceeded to offer the washing story to explain to the judge why the pants weren't forensically examined or tested, and then used them to prove Oscar's guilt without even trying to have them admitted as evidence. Everything about the pants, Lamb's story, and Bird's behavior is shady. Either Bird got the pants from Brian Johnson at Neal Ranch, or Lamb got them from a family member and made up the story to put suspicion on Oscar. Lamb's trial testimony contradicted everything in Bird's report, and we don't believe that a member of the Lee family miraculously found Donna's pants two hours after she left Don's house. None of that happened. If D.A. Ward wants to prove that it did, he will need to order a court hearing so we can get sworn testimony from Byrd, Brian Johnson, and Don Lee.
0: So, Bird didn't want Donna's pants examined or tested, and he quickly destroyed all of the case evidence so it could never be compared against an alternate suspect. The only reason the pants were examined by Blake in 2002 was because they were accidentally left in storage at Superior Court, and got overlooked during the evidence destruction. Bird was really, really, really afraid that the physical evidence pointed to Donna's real killer. We know it didn't point to Oscar because Morton couldn't come up with anything despite six months of testing. Although it was suppressed from the defense and jury, all of Morton's tests were exculpatory. They specifically excluded Oscar.
1: Who did Bird think was going to be implicated if Donna's pants were examined by Morton's lab? We still believe that Bird and probably others had reason to suspect D'Angelo from the beginning or certainly before trial. The defense received no interviews or statements from Neil Ranch, witnesses along Donna's route home, or anyone at the Lee and Scrogan homes. Same with Carol, Judy, and Heidi. Did any witness see or talk to an Exeter PD officer that day? Why weren't any of those interviews or potential witnesses part of the case or trial? TCSO Johnson, McKinney, and Hensley testified that they identified tire and shoe prints at the scenes as belonging to law enforcement vehicles and personnel. Instead of documenting those, they ignored them at Byrd's direction. That's not speculation that's from their reports and testimony
0: additionally bird lived across the street from don lee's great uncle and don's father worked for the county road crew so bird may have felt protective of the family tcso took no sworn statements from anyone who was present at the lee scrogan homes between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. on the 26th since the girls waited for don to arrive home presumably someone was in the lee house and encouraged them to stay Who was that? We know from trial that Don's father, Alan, arrived home with Don in the James Scrogg Pinto. James lived in Arizona, so we're assuming that his family was visiting his parents for Christmas. Why else would his car be there for Don to drive? Where was Don between 3.45 and 6 p.m.? At trial, he said that he was at home, but there's no sworn statement to that effect, and if anyone verified his alibi, they failed to provide a statement or testimony. TCSO did not search the Lee home, the Scroggin home, or the property. They did not search the Pinto or any other vehicle available to the family that day.
1: If TCSO had done a thorough and proper investigation of the last place where Don was seen, we wouldn't have to wonder now if Bird and Lamb were involved in covering for a Lee Scroggins family member. We know that Oscar was on Garden Street and arrived home by 4.30, and the state's best theory of the case left zero minutes for the homicide and cleanup. We also know that D.A. Ward insists that D'Angelo's been cleared. Ward's conclusions about the evidence against Oscar relied on lies about Lamb being a disinterested witness and pants that weren't in evidence. If Oscar and D'Angelo didn't kill Donna and nobody saw her after she left the Lee residence, what are we supposed to think here? Has the Lee and Scrogan DNA been compared to the male profile obtained from the bloody rags or the three alleles from the hair slides? No, it hasn't, and they haven't been eliminated by alibi, searches, or physical evidence. DA Ward claimed in his report that he had dozens of people work on the case review, including TCSO and DA investigators. Exactly what did they investigate?
0: There's been some grumbling about us being mean to Laverne Lamb, who died last year and can no longer defend herself. Some of that criticism comes from people who have known all along about the Lamb-Lee family relationship. Nobody has disputed the facts, but they're upset about how it makes Laverne and the family look. Yes, we know. We're upset, too. We imagine that the Clifton children will be upset. Oscar can't be upset because he died in prison seven years ago without ever knowing the truth. At best, Laverne let herself be pressured and threatened by Byrd. We know what that sounds like because that's the exact story told to us by the woman on the beach in Oscar's 1965 case. We don't doubt for a minute that Byrd told Laverne that if she didn't testify to the story he directed, he would arrest all of the males in her family and they'd get the death penalty. Why wouldn't Laverne believe that Byrd could and would do that?
1: That brings us to the question of perjury, which is more complicated than it sounds. We've heard rumors that TCSO has contacted case witnesses and threatened to charge them with perjury if they come forward now and repudiate their prior trial testimony. That sounds like an empty threat, but in 1972, California changed the statute of limitations on perjury from three years from the date of the statement to three years from the date the perjury is discovered. So, if a witness came forward today and said that they had intentionally lied in a sworn statement or on the witness stand, they could be charged. and The penalties are no joke.
0: However, proving perjury is a high bar. The statement had to be made under sworn oath. The person had to know that the information was false and intended to tell a lie, and the issue had to be material to the case, likely to influence the outcome. So, any situation where the person made an honest mistake can't be perjury. If an eyewitness really believed that they were identifying the correct person, but later realized that they were tainted by a prior photo shown to them by law enforcement, that's a mistake. Did the person have a good faith belief that the statement was true at the time they made it? Yes, then it's not perjury. If they knew it wasn't the right person, but law enforcement threatened them, that's perjury, and the officer is guilty of suborning perjury. Perjury and subornation are felonies, and you can go to prison for four years.
1: What would we do if we had made a mistake in our testimony, or had felt threatened into lying? We would hire an attorney, and not one who practices in Tulare County, or might be friends with DA Ward or ADA Alavezos. That attorney could ask the Attorney General, or even the Governor's office, for immunity in exchange for a full and truthful statement. That would be especially important if we felt the TCSO or the DA had pressured us to either lie or hide critical information that pointed away from Oscar or towards a different suspect. Police and prosecutorial misconduct are supposed to be investigated by the California Department of Justice, not by the local agencies who committed the offenses. Based on what we know about the testimony and evidence, there may be several living case witnesses who were either pressured to lie or falsely say they didn't remember things helpful to the defense. We also believe witnesses were told to hide exculpatory information and overstate their certainty about identifications, time estimates, and opinions.
0: One person we haven't talked about much in the podcast is Danny Bolin the concrete contractor Oscar talked to about doing work on Bill Rose's house. Boland didn't have any information about Oscar's whereabouts between 3 and 5 p.m. and isn't relevant to his alibi other than proving that Oscar returned to Garden Street after being home for lunch. However, Bolin is an interesting study in the pressure that D.A. Powell put on the case's witnesses. As we've discussed before... Bird and Powell were obsessed with showing that Oscar was not wearing his knee brace and was wearing cowboy boots on the day Donna was killed. These two issues were impossibly tied together, although they were offered to prove two different things. As Oscar's doctor testified at trial, he was severely disabled by his knee injury, and Donna could have easily run away or even overpowered Oscar. Also, Oscar's black shoes were built into the brace. If he was wearing the shoes, he was wearing the brace. And vice versa,
1: so at trial, Powell wanted to show that Oscar wasn't wearing his brace because that narrative made him seem more able-bodied, and that also allowed him to have been wearing cowboy boots, which Powell tried to match to the heel print from Neil Ranch. All of Oscar's family members, including his in-law, swore that Oscar was wearing both the brace and his black shoes. And each saw him at multiple points during the day and evening. That left Danny Boland in the extremely uncomfortable position of being forced to prove Powell's case.
0: P.I. Pettyjohn took a second statement from Boland on march twenty fourth, nineteen seventy-six, and they discussed Oscar's clothing and brace.
1: Boland stated that when Clifton contacted him the two occasions on twelve twenty six seventy five, he was wearing a heavy-knit pullover long-sleeved sweater, white or off-white in color, a pair of dark double-knit slacks, and black Oxford-type shoes. He stated Clifton was not wearing his leg brace and told him so. He stated he was positive about his wearing black shoes with a moccasin-type toe and positive he was not then wearing cowboy boots. Boland stated he does not know Clifton's present address. The last he knew, he was living in a two-story house in Farmersville. He stated that he has known Clifton by sight for some time, but never talked to him other than to say hello when they chanced to meet until Clifton contacted him twelve twenty-six seventy-five.
0: Boland's memory got a lot less clear by the time he got on the witness stand on July 7, 1976. Donahue Would you state your full name and your address and your occupation, please?
1: Danny Boland. I live at 556 South E Street in Exeter, and I'm a concrete contractor.
0: Are you acquainted with Oscar
1: Clifton, Mr. Boland? I know who he is, yes, sir.
0: How long have you known him?
1: He and my father were friends. I I guess probably 10 years, I guess, often.
0: Okay. And Mr. Bolin, are you acquainted with the Richmond family that's involved in this particular case? Yes, sir. And they live in Exeter also? Yes, sir. And about how long have you known them?
1: Quite a while. They're quite a while, probably six, seven, eight years.
0: And you knew their daughter, Donna Jo? Yes, sir. Now, Mr. Bolin, directing your attention to the date of December the 26th, were you working on a construction job somewhere on Garden Street that day? Yes, sir. All right. Now, when you first, when was it that day that you first saw Mr. Clifton?
1: Sometime before noon. I, before I went to lunch. What time did you go to lunch? I don't, I go to lunch sometimes at 11, sometimes at 1130, sometimes around 12. I imagine it was 11, 1130.
0: The first time you saw him? Yes, sir. And about how long were you and he together at that time?
1: 10 minutes, something like that.
0: Do you recall, Mr. Boland, whether at that time you had already stripped the forms from the foundation?
1: No, not before lunch.
0: And how long, when was it that you next saw Mr. Clifton?
1: After, after I got back, probably around one o'clock.
0: Okay, could it have been earlier than one o'clock? Sure. Could it have been later than one o'clock? Not much. What time did you quit work that day?
1: Around 15 till 2, 10 till 2, something like that.
0: Okay, the second time you saw Mr. Clifton, did he come back over to the job site where you were working? Yes, sir. And at that time, did you give him anything?
1: I gave him my business card.
0: He was consulting you concerning possibly doing a job for someone? Is that correct? Yes, sir. Now, you say it could have been later than 1 p.m. How much after 1 p.m. could it have been?
1: Ten minutes? Fifteen minutes?
0: The second time Mr. Boland that Mr. Clifton and you met at the job site, approximately how long was he there?
1: He left about fifteen after one.
0: Was there anyone with him? No, sir. Okay, I have no other questions. Cross examination by Mr. Powell. Mr. Boland, how was Mr. Clifton dressed that day?
1: He had on a a white sweater and dark kind of double knit pants.
0: What kind of shoes did he have on?
1: Kind of shoes? Yes, sir. I think they were. I think they were black shoes.
0: Okay, did he have his brace on? No, sir. And how do you remember that? We talked about it. And he did not have his brace on? No, sir. Okay, were those dark shoes he had on, could they have been a dark brown? They could have been. But you're for sure he didn't have his brace on?
1: No, sir, he didn't have his brace on.
0: Okay, because you talked to him about it. Yes, sir. All right, no further questions. Redirect examination by Mr. Donahue. Now, as a matter of fact, Mr. Boland, didn't you expressly tell Mr. Pettyjohn that he, you were positive that Mr. Clifton was wearing black shoes?
1: Yeah, I thought he was wearing black shoes, yes.
0: All right, Mr. Clifton, would you stand up and walk over here? The day you saw him on December the 26th, was he wearing a pair of black shoes like the ones he has on now? No, sir. What were they? What's different about them?
1: I thought they were just tie-up shoes, flat... I thought they were just tie-up flat shoes, kind of like army shoes, you know? Like work boots? It's about seven, eight months, sir. They were dark shoes. They were black, I thought.
0: All right, you may sit down, Mr. Clifton. As a matter of fact, you described them as a moccasin-type shoe, didn't you?
1: Well, they were black. It seems like they were black flat shoes with a little seam and tie shoes.
0: Like an Oxford?
1: Yeah, I guess so.
0: Well, I mean, something like I mean, did it come up and higher than my shoes?
1: No, they were like your shoes, as I remember. Like I say, it's been a
0: while. All right, Mr. Bolin, I'll show you Exhibit 58, which is a pair of cowboy boots which have been introduced into evidence. When you saw Mr. Clifton on December the 26th, you observed the shoes he had on. Is that correct?
1: In all fairness, sir, when I I was... When I found out who'd done this, you know, supposedly was arrested for the the thing, what I did, people calling me, I, I tried to remember certain things. I didn't try to remember everything, just the things that I, you know, like time and all that stuff. Now, I can't tell you exactly what he had on. In all fairness, I can't. I can tell you what I remember but I can't tell you if he had those on or didn't have them on. That wouldn't be fair.
0: Do you remember whether he was wearing these cowboy boots or something similar to these? No. Mr. Powell. Objection. Just a moment, Mr. Boland. He has just asked and answered that, and he's just said he cannot remember, in all fairness, what kind of footwear he had on. The court. He may repeat the question. You may ask him. Mr. Donahue, would you read the question back for Mr. Bolin, please? Do you remember whether he was wearing these cowboy boots or something similar to these? No, sir. Okay, that's all, sir. Thank you very much, Mr. Bolin. Mr. Powell, just a moment, Mr. Bolin. Recross examination. Do you recall, you say you talked about the brace with Mr. Clifton? Yes, sir. Do you recall what you two said about it? We were just... You know, having a conversation,
1: I just asked, I said, you must, I said, last time I saw you, you were wearing a brace. Are you doing better? And he, he, we just talked about it.
0: Okay. You noticed then that he wasn't wearing his brace? Yes, sir. He seemed to be doing better because he didn't have it on? Well, I don't,
1: I just, I was just passing conversation
0: Okay, but you're sure of that. You do remember that. You do remember that conversation? Yes, sir. You do remember that he did not have his brace on? Yes, sir. No further questions. Mr. Donahue, I have no questions.
1: The court. You may step down.
0: Donahue, may this witness be...
1: Mr. Powell.
0: One other question, Mr. Bolin. You said you don't remember if he had those boots on or not. Is that correct? Yes, sir. He could have had. You don't know. He couldn't have had. You don't know. You just don't remember. I
1: couldn't remember.
0: All right. Thank you, Mr. Donahue. Well, then you... Just a moment, sir. You don't recall what color his shoes were, do you?
1: They were dark, sir.
0: Thank you. Powell, no further questions. So, right there on the stand, in front of the jury, within 30 seconds of testimony... Bolin moved from, well, they were black, it seems like they were black flat shoes with a little seam and tie shoes, to, I don't remember. Between those two answers, he explained the pressure that he'd felt with, quote, people calling him, and how he didn't think it would be fair for him to say one way or another. Bolin was trying to be truthful without appearing to help the defense. It's obvious that he was coached to say that he couldn't remember, Or wasn't certain as a way to avoid possible perjury charges while still letting Powell use him to make vague statements about the possibility of boots. By the way, D.A. Ward has told the press that Boland testified that Oscar was wearing cowboy boots. Either Ward hasn't read the transcript or he's lying again.
1: There is no doubt that Boland saw Oscar wearing his black shoes. That is what he said in his March statement and in his July testimony. We don't believe that he had a sudden memory lapse on this stand, but we do think he was afraid of going against Powell and Bird. This also raises the two distinct reasons that we believe Oscar was wearing his brace when he talked to Bolin. The black shoes were part of the brace, and Bolin's story about discussing the brace with Oscar is not remotely credible.
0: Oscar flatly denied ever discussing his brace with Bolin, and we believe him. Boland's stumbling, mumbling, vague story on the stand is hardly convincing, and his March statement to Pettijohn appears to contradict the story. In March, Boland said that he only knew Clifton, quote, by sight, and had never talked to him other than to say hello. That matches Oscar's statements about that being their first conversation. In March, Boland also mentioned the house that the Cliftons lived in during the 1960s, before they lived in Washington and Las Vegas. That was well before Oscar's knee injury, and they hadn't seen each other or spoken since Oscar returned from Vegas in early 1975. As far as we can tell, Boland's story on the stand is a complete fabrication.
1: Last time I saw you, you were wearing a brace. Are you doing better? And he, he, we just talked about it.
0: Okay, you noticed then that he wasn't wearing his brace? Yes, sir. He seemed to be doing better because he didn't have it on? Well, I don't.
1: I just, I was just passing conversation. First, Oscar's brace was under his pant leg, and there would have been absolutely no way for Boland to, quote, notice that he was or wasn't wearing it. Second, they had not spoken to each other since Oscar's accident. How would Boland have known about the accident, the injury, or the brace? He couldn't have and he didn't. In fact, on 12-26-75, Oscar's knee wasn't doing better. He was facing another surgery and in the process of collecting a $123,000 judgment from the driver who caused the injury. We do not believe that Oscar ever had any conversation with Boland about his brace. Oscar was, in fact, wearing it under his slacks, and Boland's two statements that Oscar was wearing the shoes built into the brace, confirms that. Here is another point that should have been pressed by Donahue at trial. Exactly when and where did Boland claim that he saw Oscar and originally learned of the brace? Pressing him on the details of the story could have torn it apart, but of course that never happened.
0: So why would Boland make up a story about the brace and try to back out of his own statements about the black shoes? We have some thoughts on that based on other information we have about Boland. He admitted to both Petty John and Donahue that he was close to the Richmonds and had known them for six to eight years, and he testified that he specifically knew Donna. In fact, we've been told by a reliable source that Donna babysat for the Bolands' twins in the year leading up to her murder. Bolin did not want to assist Oscar's defense in any way or give the appearance of helping, even indirectly. Bolin was under tremendous community pressure. The Richmonds were counting on him to help secure a conviction, and he had a business that relied on referrals and reputation. It's pretty easy to understand how his memory about the shoes suddenly grew foggy, and he seemed to remember a comment about the brace while they were just passing conversation.
1: That's kind of our optimistic view of Boland's testimony. Our other thoughts end up back at Bird and the stick used on uncooperative witnesses. Danny Boland could have been a really good suspect in Donna's homicide. Oscar stopped by Danny's job site and asked for a bid on the walkway at the nearby Bill Rose house. According to Oscar, Boland went over and looked at the work and then gave Oscar a bid later that day. When they talked a second time after lunch. So on the 26th, Oscar's truck with the invoice book possibly still on the dash was at Boland's job site and Boland was at Oscar's job site. Boland admitted to Petty John that he was aware of Oscar's 1965 conviction, which makes sense since his father had been the pastor at the Clifton's church.
0: Additionally, when asked about his alibi, Boland said that he went for a beer after work, dropped his worker at home in Farmersville around three, and then drove home. So he placed himself driving east on Visalia Road at the same time Donna, Carol, and Judy were heading west on their way to Don Lee's house. That statement also placed him at home at East Street and Firebaugh at the time Donna would have ridden by that location on her way home. Donna knew him, trusted him, and would have gone into his house or accepted a ride home from him. Boland knew where Donna lived and about the grove road that ran behind her house. He had access to Oscar's unlocked truck that day and specifically knew that Oscar would be a believable person to frame. What do we know about what Boland did after he got home around three o'clock? He told Petty John that he, quote, cleaned up and then went to town. Could Byrd have made it clear to Bolin that he looked like a good suspect and that it would be in his best interest to make sure Oscar was convicted? Given the false murder charges filed against Carter to make him change his statement and Lamb's relationship with the Lees, we believe any level of witness intimidation was possible.
1: On that front... We're going to read two news stories about Bud Brumley, Beth's father. He was the vice principal at Donna's school and the person who called the police two days after the homicide and claimed that Beth had been approached.
0: Exeter Sun, August 7, 1974. Brumley named assistant principal at Exeter High. Weldon Bud Brumley has been named assistant principal at Exeter Union High School. Brumley came to Exeter in 1974 as vice-principal after serving at Woodlake High Schools the last seven years. A graduate of East Central State College at Ada, Oklahoma, he holds a master's degree in education and a general administration degree. He taught in Commerce, Oklahoma High School, and was head basketball coach of a team which won the conference championship and the district championship. In 1960, he moved to Woodlake and taught two years in the elementary school, He then went to Strathmore and taught five years in the elementary school before moving back to Woodlake to teach history in high school. He was head coach of the basketball team and was assistant football coach. He became principal of the Woodlake Continuation High School in 1968-69 and held that post until coming to Exeter this year.
1: From the Exeter Sun, March 9, 1977. Manuel Kuklis named Dean of Boys at Exeter Union High School. Manuel Kuklis has accepted the position of Dean of Boys at the Exeter Union High School following the resignation last week by Weldon Bud Brumley for personal reasons. Brumley's resignation was accepted by the trustees during a special board meeting on March 1st. Kuklis will finish out the balance of the school term as Dean of Boys and will also teach some math classes and continue serving as the varsity baseball coach. The teaching portions of the position which was handled by Brumley are being handled by various teachers. According to Assistant Superintendent Wesley Stewart, a decision will be made during the summer as to how the position will be handled next year.
0: Yes, we know why Bud Brumley abruptly left Exeter High. We read about it in a letter between Oscar and Donahue. We've also spoken to several people who were at the school at the time. However, since we don't have a sworn statement from a direct witness, we won't give details we can't prove. All we'll say is that we don't believe that he's a credible witness, and Bird may have had reason to think that there were issues that could be used to pressure his testimony. We could go on and on like this. One of Powell's witnesses, who claimed that Oscar worked without his brace, had a lengthy criminal record that was never disclosed to the jury. We have no idea if he had pending charges dropped or was threatened, but we assume there was a carrot, stick, or both. Looking at all of this, it's easy to see and understand how Laverne Lamb's testimony and the mysteries surrounding Donna's pants were standard operating procedure for Byrd and Powell.
1: We're pretty much 50-50 on the motive for Bird's actions. He didn't want the items of evidence tested because he believed that they would point to D'Angelo or he thought they would point to a Lee Scroggon male who was present at the property when Donna was last seen. We're curious about who exactly Bird believed really killed Donna and the evidence that supported his suspicion, but ultimately he was just covering for himself. He'd arrested the wrong person with absolutely no investigation, and convinced Powell to file unsupported charges. TCSO and the voters would have been outraged if they'd found out that Donna's killer hadn't been caught, and Oscar had a strong civil case for wrongful arrest and prosecution. Bird's obsession with protecting himself also served to protect Donna's real killer. Given Bird's recent ABC 10 interview. It's clear that he feels no responsibility for D'Angelo's later crimes. We bet that if he had the case to do all over again, he wouldn't change a thing.